My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. <laughs> Off again this with is your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? the bounds that separate a Bigfoot encounter from a ghost being witnessed or sighting a UFO or even worse being taken aboard one. Today's guest blurs the paranormal lines that divide in an attempt to broach a united understanding of the paranormal realm we exist in. Is it all that far-fetched that ghosts, Bigfoot, and UFOs might have a common source that underpins their existence? Returning champion Chaz of the Dead joins me for a third time here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss ghosts, Bigfoot, UFOs, and how there might be a human explanation behind all of these strange phenomena. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast and enjoy this conversation with Chaz of the Dead. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And with me today is a returning champion, someone that I always enjoy having on the podcast. He is a phenomenal researcher and very intrepid one at that. I'm excited to have Chaz of the Dead back on the show. Chaz, welcome here. We've talked about many things before we've talked about your book and your expedition down to south america to track down the friendship we've even talked about the bets sphere down in your home state the sunshine state last time we talked i think i did ask you where you're planning on going next Uh, i wonder did you end up going to Africa? I know you've been there before because you have some articles about it, but did you end up going to Africa? Because you said you wanted to go and check out some of the reports about possibly there being sauropods of some kind, so maybe lost species of dinosaur roaming. Flying snakes. Uh-huh. Yeah. What's the deal? Um, yeah, I don't know. I have not been back to Africa, unfortunately, <laughs> since the last show. Still working on it this goddamn economy man is making making it rough here you know what i mean not as many paranormal patrons in the world as there once were but we're working on it we're getting there well Uh, i think we we might be able to change that with this episode and i think you uh 
maybe ought to get out there. But hey, Africa, that's a tall order. So I don't blame you for holding back. But uh, given what we've heard from you before and your reputation, I think we're still in for a treat. You've been researching some stuff lately that I've been following up on. But for folks who maybe haven't heard our former interviews or your other interviews, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and, and who you are. Yeah, so I, I, do, I write mostly. I got a couple books out and I write for Paranormality Magazine these days. And I do all kinds of paranormal research from Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts. And you are down there in, in Florida still, correct? Yep, based out of Florida, but I like to do my investigations kind of all over across the U.S. and then across the globe. My first book was in Chile, a case I did down there. Go back and find that episode. Link in the show notes, probably. <laughs> um, and then, as you mentioned, my second one was a, a case here in, in Florida, kind of reviving this this old case, which is seeming to become more and more relevant as the days go on with uh, some of these UFO stories in the news. But yeah, anything that has has high strangeness, uh, a really good story, something bizarre, I like to go there and uh, investigate. And when I say investigate, you know, a lot of people mean they bust out their you know, EVP recorders and their spirit boxes or whatever. But I'm more of a fan of a good tab of acid or a handful of mushrooms. And then we try to do a little mixture of some shamanism, some occultism and paranormal and try to get the weirdest mixture possible because that's where these stories tend to live. And so, yeah, I, I try to meet them in the middle, I suppose. I love that. That's Essentially my same approach, although I can't say I've had many paranormal encounters on acid. I've had some mystical experiences on acid, mm -hmm. but I love that approach. And it's definitely, I think it makes for a gonzo paranormal experience, which is what a lot of people are looking for. I mean, people often listen to a show like this and go out and do their own, you know, hunting of whatever sort they seem suitable to where they live. Where I just moved to, there's reports of something called the Winchester Wild Man back in the, the 1700s. There's a town called Winchester mm. up here and you know, it's kind of nestled in the mountains sort of near the, well, I think it is the Appalachian, Northern Appalachian. So I'm sure you've looked into Sasquatch going all down the Americas. There's probably even reports of Yeti down in South America, too. You wrote about that in uh, your first book. But it is interesting how there's, it seems like there's these different species of Bigfoot, depending on, you know, what region they're in. You know, it makes you think of, Absolutely. you know, zoology and how, you know, you find like wolves look different depending on where they are. You know, people are probably familiar, you know, with bears. There's different types of bears all over the planet and they look different depending on where they are on the planet. But with Sasquatch, what's interesting is there are these like sort of environmental regional variations of, of Sasquatch, right? I mean, even Sasquatch is kind of a regional term. But sure. despite that, they do seem to have this otherworldly characteristic that 
something like a bear and a wolf or, you know, might maybe don't have as much, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've come across this in your research in the Sasquatch. Like, oh, yeah, these- a shit ton. Here in Florida, even like regionally, it gets pretty different. Of course, you know, a, a lot of people have heard the term skunk ape for the regional Florida Sasquatch, but there are quite a variety of that. In fact, the first skunk ape was actually not named for its putrid odor, which that's kind of my like like test to see if a Florida primate or a squatcher knows what he's talking about is if he says they're called skunk apes because they smell bad. Common misconception. The term skunk ape actually came from a newspaper, I believe, near Panama City in the panhandle of Florida. And it was a photo that came along with a Sasquatch sighting. And it was a Sasquatch, but it had a white strap stripe down its back, kind of like Pepe Le Pew in a Looney Tunes cartoon kind of kind of deal. And so it, it looked like a skunk. And so that was the paper at the time had called it the skunk ape. And so anytime I hear like a Florida guy being like, it's because they smell bad. I'm like, you aren't as good at this as you claim to be. Well, I love that dispelling of that myth there. I appreciate you sharing that with us because, yeah, I mean, from all accounts, it seems like all Sasquatch have that odor for the most part. You know, people notice that there's a certain odor with Sasquatch. Uh, So, yeah, maybe that would be another oh, and the aliens and the ghosts man they all smell <laughs> terrible by all accounts <laughs> well and that's the thing that really adds another dimension to it i mean just reading about it your imagination might take you to certain you know odors just th- through your you know mm-hmm. visualization capacity but you know when people report something those are the kind of things you look for i mean do you often go and talk to people witnesses firsthand and get those firsthand accounts oh yeah that's a bulk of you know the research i i try to conduct especially going to conferences and you know certain locations and stuff there's always someone with a, a good story to share right and when you're having that experiencing you're listening to the stories A lot of researchers make the mistake of they try to cherry pick details that match because they think finding these matching details constitutes as evidence. When in reality, we should be looking at the outliers of these cases, I believe, more so than than a lot of the similarities. The similarities are documented, right? If something has a a certain experience has enough similarities, it breaks beyond the barrier of hallucination into the realm of paranormal, right? If everyone saw something different in the woods, it's just, you know, it's a hallucination. But since so many people keep seeing the big hairy guy, it's kind of moved from, you know, the ravings of a lunatic to this legendary status. Now, how physical is it is still up to debate. But it seems that once anything breaks that kind of barrier from the individual past the group to a, a societal level, where you kind of create this egregore, as, as one term out there, but this uh, archetype, as Jung would have called it in the subconscious. And that archetype seems to be able to create a physical impact. I heard a a great analogy once. It's kind of like saying, you know, is Batman real? 
well, he's not real, but there's books and TV shows and backpacks and Batman costumes. And in fact, there are people who dress up as Batman as characters and try to like fight crime. They mostly help old ladies across the street, but an idea has created this physical impact. And it seems that these paranormal entities, whether they be aliens, Bigfoot, or ghosts, they seem to have a pattern of physical activity. And this is my favorite mind fuck to drop on a Bigfoot hunter, which again, I actually, I love we're starting with Bigfoot because I think the Bigfoot community is tops when it comes to the paranormal community. People shit on those dudes hard, but they are, they're funny, number one. And that's, that's the best thing. For those fuck, I listen, I love the ghost hunting. Chaz of the Dead, I started with the ghost hunting. But those fuckers are sticks in the mud, man. They, it's a tough crowd. You're cracking jokes and everyone's like, why aren't you taking this serious? You know what I mean? They're like, that, this is silly. The whole thing is silly. Let's acknowledge it. It's a part of the process. I love um, the subculture of paranormality because it is true. There's like the ghost... There's the ghost people who have this sort of like goth kind of very serious mm-hmm. kind of oh, melodramatic maybe kind of approach. And then Bigfoot, I feel like the Bigfoot contactees, and I have this written down because I wanted to ask you about this. There's a very wide range of Bigfoot contactees, but the forest and the wilderness naturally draws a certain type of people. So I think that is why you maybe see Bigfoot people having a certain crunchiness and a wholesomeness for sure. I agree with oh, that. Absolutely. I, I had a guy on the show recently. I'm not sure if you've encountered his work before, but his name is Sunbow True Brother. And oh, dude, I've met him before. Oh, so you yeah. met. Tell us about your meeting of Sunbow, because I only sat across from him no, the same it was way. A conference, I, I shook his hand. Um, okay. But it was, it was either last year or the year before at the Florida, the great Florida skunk ape conference, the big Florida Bigfoot event, something like that, dude. It is the, uh, again, my favorite paranormal event to show to because again, everyone's super nice. All of those celebrities are super approachable. Some of those ghost hunter dudes, man, from the fucking travel channel without getting into naming names and all that shit. Poof. Tough, man. They're a tough hang. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, okay, man. Sure. Yeah. Like, relax. You're a TV star. Have some fun with it. <laughs> well, they take the subject very seriously, it seems. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's also really kind of silly at a certain point because they take it so seriously, but, like, the the amount of research behind what they, they don't do the reading. You know what I mean? They, like... They've got this framework and they it's it is it's the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again. Well, <laughs> and I how wonder many episodes of Ghost Adventures are there. How many years has that been on? Have they gotten it? In a, have they got a ghost in the jar yet? No. So clearly the process is a little broken, guys. Let's take some steps forward. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an enemy of the ghost hunting community. But I definitely am a skeptic, and I don't think you're an enemy either. But it's worth oh, pointing out. Oh, I, I, sure, but I, I wonder. Got to help them out. <laughs> well, I wonder if the seriousness is 
their only, you know, way of, you know, clinging to this because, yeah, I mean, if they had a, any sort of silliness about it, it might expose the fact that there really isn't anything there to it. You know, maybe well, that's all see, they got. It- that's actually the wild thing is because in my experience, it is the opposite. And that's confirmed through research and through my personal investigations. And there's some good teams I work with um, on occasion here in Florida, Outcast Paranormal, and they do a lot of Bigfoot and a lot of ghosts. They're not too much into the alien stuff, but they, they're like kind of a mixture of, of a squatching team and a, a ghost hunting team. And they do some awesome, they're on the, they're on the wave, the new wave, some psychedelic experiments and some weird tech that no one's tried before. They're doing new shit, which is so refreshing. But in this realm of ghost hunting, it's rare. (laughs) It certainly is rare. It's slowly changing, but it is, it's this paradigm and it is, you know, like a lot of things in America. They're trying to sell it to the middle America, you know, so you got to sprinkle a little Jesus in there. It helps boost the sales. You kind of got to go through that. Well, it it does play into that paradigm well. Yeah, it plays very much into that paradigm. And it does feel like there are some foundational cases that, you know, make the topic interesting. Like there are real poltergeist cases and ghost cases that you read you can read about and you know it makes your mind wonder and there's evidence for this stuff too i mean physical attacks and bruises and things like that but you got to wonder you know if part of this is parapsychological and the whole fact that you are investigating it is like nullifying any of the activity like taking the camera crew into the place Mm -hmm. is like this thing that is inherently the opposite right it does not attract these sort of encounters oh dude there's i have a whole theory about how cameras negate a lot of paranormal activity but Back to the point of having a, a good laugh and having a good time when you do these things. That was how most seances, when they started taking off in the 1800s, post-Fox sisters, those ones were pretty creepy. But most seances where bizarre stuff happened, the atmosphere had to be jovial first. And this is well documented. Like you had to have some drinks and relax and like everyone get to know each other showing up and being super serious. It's like trying to go to a, have an office meeting. Think of any business, any kind of arrangement ever and going to a meeting and it's the fucking guy hosting the meeting is Zach Bagans. And he's like, fuck you demons. I'm going to fight you. And like immediately you're like, whoa, bro. Like it's just, you're not the psychic atmosphere right. is, is not really conducive to a shared experience. And honestly, I think that's why you've gotten shittier paranormal evidence as it goes on. And of course there are hundreds, if not thousands of examples of mediums and shit faking it from back in the day. But Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove from Stanford University does a really good documentation of like academics, like hardcore, well-respected, a couple Pulitzer Prize winners from back then who went to seances with the, you know, determination to debunk it and saw some shit that they couldn't explain. Like they, they saw fingerprints and hand marks that were completely unique. No one in the room had any of those like they yeah it was some weird shit 
And so there were some really intriguing evidence ever since it got, you know, Jesus-y. And again, believe whatever you want, peace, love, and happiness. But ever since it got a little fundamentalist, let's say, where it's a good versus evil kind of dynamic, it it really has reduced, I think, the phenomenon. And then you add the whole camera thing, which, you know, if these things operate in a scientific manner, which, you know, I think anything does eventually if we do enough science about it, if it actually has some kind of, you know, unknown physics behind it, the phenomenon certainly seems to be a result of a collective unconscious. A group effort going into it really seems to help. There was this really interesting situation from these. I went to a a conference in Savannah about a year ago that was a ghost hunting conference. And this team had this really interesting documentary. They made two of them. And they've been studying this one house for 10 years. And I was like, that's awesome. Like, that's the kind of dedication to these cases that we really need. Like, let's see the evidence. And their peak piece of evidence was after like 10 years of investigations and doing this whole thing, they finally caught this ball rolling on its own to the edge of the stairs and then falling down the stairs. And it is, it's clearly moving on a level plane by itself you know, in a intentional direction from a dead stop. It's weird. Definitely weird. But this was after years of them, you know, studying it, looking for ghosts, hearing knocks and creaks. And they eventually discovered that it was haunted by two ghosts. And they were the ghosts of these little girls. And even though there was no historical evidence to back up two dead girls being at this property, through all the EVPs and communications, they had figured out that this was a dead girl ghost. And they were finally able to establish this connection after years of practice and yada, yada, And the whole time I'm like, so you did a Philip experiment. (laughs) You know what I mean? And for those who don't know, the Philip experiment was done by a bunch of Canadians. And it's been recreated a couple times. It's also been debunked a couple times. So, you know, do with that what you will. It's a psychic thing. So if you're out to debunk it, you're going to debunk it. If you're out to prove it, you're probably going to prove it. Mm. That's how the, a lot well, of these psychic things work. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what I was getting at before with the, the comment about the travel channel shows and like the parapsychological aspect to it. It's like when you set an intention you end up getting that intention in in, mm. in that way. And uh, I wonder, you know, my, my next question was going to be bringing us back to the big hairy ape man, which seems to be more human-like the more I learn about it than ape-like. Mm. But there there's this overlap. And I love that we started on talking about the subculture, the community of this research, because it is interesting to note, like, they don't always mesh well with one another. And you're someone who clearly likes to float among all the tribes. And Mm -hmm. I'm kind of the same way. I I like that about you. And I think that makes for your research to be very well-rounded. And we need more of that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to Bigfoot, there are cases where it seems like a phantom. I mean, you hear reports of people trying to shoot at it and bullets go right through it, or it can cause like all of these strange mists to form and it disappears. I mean, yeah, there's some interesting aspects to it. 
that's my favorite thing to to drop on the Bigfoot people because you still you do there are like any human based network there's some tribalism that comes into play and the ghost hunters don't talk to the ufo guys and the ufo guys don't talk to anybody because they they're like this is science and you know the ghost hunter guys are it's this is jesus the reason i like the bigfoot guys is because it's all over the map (laughs) no one's got a solid there's not really a leading party there you know it used to be the guys who thought it was a physical like actual creature, but it's pretty all over the map these days. You have like the people who think it's feral humans. You've got this, you know, whole idea of what we're going to get into this phantom Bigfoot, um, multidimensional. Some people think he's flat out is an alien. Uh, all excellent theories, and it creates a more, I think, open environment. I think you can get to the Bigfoot people a little. Well, more than you can break through to some of the other groups. And I, I try to when I, I do these conferences and hang out with them and stuff. And my favorite analogy, because it comes up, Chaz of the Dead. I thought you were a ghost hunter. What are you doing with this Bigfoot? Like, what you're into Bigfoot? You ever seen a Bigfoot? And it's my, I always bring up how Bigfoot, everything he does besides being big and hairy is the same as a poltergeist. If you watch the steps of a Bigfoot hunt, a Sasquatch encounter, it mirrors the same as a seance or as a ghost hunt. They usually start with maybe some wood knocking, right? Which is the same thing in, in the houses. You hear the the knocks. That's how communication starts. And once you start communicating back, it starts to, to communicate back to you. And again, with starts with knocks, usually evolves into vocalizations in poltergeist cases, same with the Bigfoot cases. Everyone's seen the videos of the dudes calling to each other. And there's been multiple cases where separate Sasquatch groups end up calling to each other back and forth in the same like area. It happens. But a lot of times, it's something else hollering back. Um, then you get the, in poltergeist cases, what we would call an apportation, where things appear or disappear in, like, really weird ways. In the Bigfoot community, they call it gifting, right? If you mm. leave out a jar of peanut butter, that dude will, like, open it up, yeah. eat it, lick it all out, and then close the jar, which, of course, a normal animal wouldn't do. And then he might throw rocks or pebbles or things like that, which, again, common appearances in poltergeist cases. Uh, the footprints also, which Bigfoot is m- almost most famous for, footprints, especially in snow and wintertime poltergeist cases, pop up a shit ton too. Not quite as much as in the, the Bigfoot cases, but you can find plenty of literature of ghost footprints. And of course, the ghost footstep is one of the common audio occurrences when the poltergeist case occurs. And then finally, in some of the most bizarre cases, you have the structures where people where they were hearing the howling, the knocking, they'll go check it out in the morning and there'll be like a weird pile of sticks that was clearly put there. It was obviously not some kind of accident. They were stacked up in a weird kind of way. The same way a family who's experiencing poltergeist phenomenon might wake up and it's the, you know, the poltergeist scenario where all the stairs are stacked up in like a crazy way or all the dishes are taken out of the, 
uh, drawers and placed on the table, even though they were away. Um, in certain cases, this one family, they turned off all the lights, went to bed, heard this loud bang. They turned the lights back on and there's like a full dinner being cooked in the kitchen. Like the water's already boiling, which logically doesn't like it. The stove couldn't have even been hot by then. And so you have these super bizarre, you know, fractional changes which pop up in poltergeist cases and Bigfoot cases as well. Not quite to those extremes because it's outside. You don't quite have the same locales, but you do. You wander across these structures associated with Bigfoot in the woods. Well, and that's something that really fascinated me. I heard through the missing 411 research, I believe, it was either them or Laura Krantz, who I think is the daughter of Krantz, Kranzer, something like that. He's one of the founding four Bigfoot researchers. And they yeah, yeah. talked about finding the Sasquatch nest that it was proportional to their size of being like a baby bird in a bird's nest. It was a giant nest woven they said that the sticks were woven so tight that it would have taken like days and days for them to recreate something like this. And it was essentially like a giant bird's nest. I don't remember if this was out in the Pacific Northwest or somewhere in the deep south, but they have so many fascinating stories that I've been getting into. Oh, yeah. about Absolutely. And the thing about the structures always gets to me because you know you'll talk to the people who think it is just a monkey out there who's doing some weird shit and they're like well it would be you know they're building that clearly as like shelter or something so if it is like the giant nest bird's nest though you'd find feathers you'd find shit you'd find piss right you know what I mean? you'd find hair if it was an animal nest you'd find hair you'd find these things you'd find this physical evidence of the this creature well, and, very and, easy and to i think they were pretty dead set that this was some sort of creation of sasquatch you know they didn't they described it as looking like a bird's nest no but, i agree it yeah. is sasquatch yeah but it's a non-physical phantom poltergeist sasquatch i see what you mean okay well and <laughs> that's what i'm thinking and that's kind that's of why it's not covered in hair and shit <laughs> well and that's kind of what we should make clear for the audience because like you're right there are i mean really nuances to this because there's within this giant umbrella right we have sasquatch mm -hmm. aliens ufos which are and ghosts which all might be more similar than people think but then within those you know there are smaller umbrellas where people are like oh no sasquatch is all it's like the same thing with the nuts and bolts ufo researchers oh, yeah. there's the flesh and blood sasquatch researchers and I think you and I are more comfortable entertaining all sides, and I like that in a conversation because, yeah, definitely when you look at a lot of these reports, oftentimes they have flavors of all three rather than just one. And I was going to ask you earlier when you made the point about researchers like calling to one another as if they're you know doing knocks and then they hear a knock mm -hmm. and it's just another Bigfoot research team. Oftentimes, the most interesting Bigfoot reports come from people who aren't necessarily interested in this stuff, right? Do you think that oh, plays sure. a, a factor? Like, have you noticed with the people you speak to that the more interesting witnesses are folks who weren't initially interested in the subject at all? Well, I find that 
most people who are supremely interested in these subjects have had one of those experiences. And this is something I, I wrote about in my first book with comparing the psychedelic experience to the paranormal experience. And one of the big key takeaways is the reaction. And it's the same thing. So, you know, if you take psychedelics, a a good vast majority of people have this, you know, sense of oneness with the universe, this euphoria, this, you know, universal kind of feeling of mysticism and spirituality connected to it. Again, debates on what that feeling is or whatever. But a lot of people don't have that. The flip side of that coin is a lot of people take psychedelics and it is the most terrifying thing they've ever experienced and they hate it. And this kind of duality is kind of a conundrum, especially when it comes to those people who are like looking for just a chemical normal explanation for it. But that same conundrum certainly appears in paranormal experiences whether it's bigfoot you have the lovable bigfoot motif anyone who reads bigfoot literature which again some of the best stuff believable most believable stuff absolutely not (laughs) but it is some of the best fucking reading material out there get yourself just a book stories about bigfoot encounters the weirder more obscure i heard one recently where a woman had realized she had these bigfoot in her backyard and she started leaving gifts out for them and they would give gifts back then she eventually started baking them cakes and she realized that they liked bunt cakes the best so she would create these bunt cakes and she said that she saw them from her window picking the bunt cake up and eating it like a donut. And she even uh, gave this researcher who took her witness account, her firsthand account, she gave her the recipe. So folks can even bake the <laughs> bake a Sasquatch cake if they want to attract back Sasquatches, maybe in their backyard or something. That being said, it is illegal in several states to hunt bears with donuts. So check the legality before you're out there. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So you can't leave. Bears fucking love donuts. And so for a big, chunky minute, I want to say in like the 70s or 80s, when the Dunkin' Donuts were spreading across the nation. I don't know if that's true, but there was a, a... a time where you know people will like bait for deer and shit and a lot of places that's illegal as well but it's kind of more whatever but if you were trying to kill a bear if you got a dozen fresh donuts and left it in a general area like it was it's crack to them and so people were killing shit tons of bears using donuts and it wow. became it became a problem <laughs> well so, I think anywhere in like the Pacific Northwest, that kind of area, you're not allowed to use donuts to hunt bears. <laughs> That's really, I'm glad you said that. And I, I do live in an area now where our trash is locked for bears. So there you go. And I have Watch a donut out. in my backpack. <laughs> I have a donut in my backpack. So I better eat that before I go on a hike. But yeah. That's- Look up bear and donut plus your area, dude. I'm sure you'll find some stories. Wow. <laughs> I was guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> well, and oftentimes people who, and especially like a lot of the earlier reports from the, you know, 18, 1800s, ni- early 1900s, people will describe Sasquatch as like 
bears that walk on two legs and mm. you know clearly now we have more of an understanding and you know it makes sense that people would oh, think yeah. that way well, when and they do that there's plenty of video evidence and it used to be thought like they only did it for tricks and stuff but now that we have you know, lots of reports. We do know that a bear will stand up on its hind legs and it'll walk on its hind legs like a person for a good while. Like, you know, not miles or anything, but like it will walk a few hundred yards. (laughs) So, you know, the length of a football field. (laughs) And so if you're, if it's night and you're just catching that, that again, realistically speaking, I do think that has to account for a large portion of Sasquatch sightings. That being said, it doesn't account for all that other spooky shit we were just talking about. And and to to that point, there are reports of what look like Sasquatch walking on four legs. So you have to wonder, maybe they're aware that they're being seen and maybe think to themselves, I'll appear to look like a bear if I walk this way. I mean, that's another part of this whole Sasquatch world. I just mentioned Sunbow, and one of the things I learned from him, I've heard this before too, is that Sasquatch can uh, make themselves invisible at will. Take that for Mm. what it's worth. And they're a native legend. (laughs) They're like chameleons. Yeah, it's hilarious. Uh I mean, I love this idea that there's this like hairy, you know, version of humanity out there running around. And it's something that's reported all over the world. I mean, you talk about, you know, sightings, Australia, Asia, even the Pacific Islands have some stories. You know, the Solomon Islands have the these hairy giant mm-hmm. stories. Um, you know, Russia, India, of course, Africa, and even Europe, where people think, oh, no, that's all just from the medieval times. There's nothing there now. There's still reports of wild men. Have you ever uh, looked into any of the wild men reports that kind of border on the line between like human and, and Sasquatch where it doesn't quite fit the the bill for what we think of as like uh, oh, yeah. arthropit? What is it? Arthropithecus? That's the what the flesh yeah, and blood. Yeah, I think that's it. That sounds yeah. close enough for me, man. <laughs> but there are these reports where they're more human-like. They're like like just they have human face, but very hairy. The rest of them's very hairy. Well, and that is also something that I've come to note as a key mark of the paranormal experience. There's always a human explanation for it, and I don't think. And I don't know if that's just because of, you know, we're pattern finding animals. And so we're naturally going to look to debunk things and find that human explanation. But it almost seems a part of the equation where if there's a possibility that a human's doing it, you're going to get way more weirder thing if you than if you set up a like controlled experiment. And this gets into some of the psychic experiments and whatnot done in the 60s and the 70s that were bizarre duds. But in the Bigfoot case, when it comes to this human explanation, very similar to the alien case, it's a good portion of people believe it's entirely responsible. Human beings are entirely responsible for these sightings. And even to the earliest Bigfoot encounters in America, Charles Darwin actually wrote when he was traveling through Patagonia and they were trading with some of the local tribes down there that 
the tribes have these legends of the these wild men and the he said that they described them more like giant hairy demons but it also seemed like through his impressions that it was just people who had been banished from the village so he kind of got these two different even back then as a, a scientific thinking mind he was like ah, there's kind of like a cultural thing here obviously at play but there's you know they're talking about demons but there's very everything that is ascribed to them is very could human it, so could it be and i'm let's entertain some speculation here could it be that these tribes understood that this group of whatever it was i sunbow told me that there are evil bigfoot and good bigfoot right so let's call them the evil bigfoot that the native americans describe fighting mm -hmm. and and being afraid of maybe they had it you know social in their sociology of the tribe that well when we banish people we send them off to that cannibal giant group because you know it's better to give them our have-nots than you know than let them take you know our young and innocent so let's just give them the people we don't want to deal with and like a tribute almost i mean <laughs> it's kind of dark okay. to entertain but wow that's interesting i know you you've probably read it all but there's a really entertaining story about the Sasquatch, I think it's the Paiute tribe, talks about chasing a giant red-haired beast into a cave and, you know, throwing a bunch of brush in the mouth of the cave and basically lighting it on fire. And uh, I think a researcher tried to go and uh, track that cave down and he found it. And when he tried to, like, go and excavate it to see if there was, in fact, a giant skeleton in there, the tribe was like, no, you can't do that because the giant killed a bunch of our people and they're buried there too so you can't disturb their grave and you know there are federal laws around that too so it's pr protected in that way but it is interesting that in a lot of these cases the physical evidence just always seems to evade whichever researcher happens to be looking for it and i think that adds to this phantom angle to this all like you know if there were a population of flesh and blood, you know, ape-like creatures or human-like creatures that were hairy out in the woods, you would expect that their remains would turn up from time to time. I mean, there are reports of that with Mount St. Helens with the whole eruption that the FEMA came in and trucked off all these Sasquatch corpses so nobody would see them. And, but it, it's something that I think evades researchers more often than not, you know, this whole uh, concept of physical evidence for something that may not even be physical. Absolutely. And it's this, it's actually rapidly becoming a problem in contemporary science, especially when it comes to quantum mechanics, which of course has kind of become a bit of a sci-fi buzzword these days. And a stoned dude on a paranormal podcast is not the guy to go for accurate quantum mechanics information. Read a book, people, by, I don't know, watch a documentary, I'm fucking, whatever. But the gist of it, and as most people know, the, the layman's term is that these particles through the slit experiment have been shown that the, the particles, the basest unit of material we can see, it's what light's made of. It's what, you know, the atoms are made of. It's all the tiny particles. They do not exist in a physical way unless they are observed. 
when they're not being observed, they exist as a waveform. And the way they test this is two slits, two particle-sized holes in those big hydron colliders. That's what these things, those things do. And so it goes in one or the other because it's one particle. But when no one's observing it, when they only have these quantum computers running in the background, the particle is registering that it is in both tunnels at the exact same time. The minute it's observed, it selects one of the tunnels. And it's really interesting because the way it works is it fires the two particles in opposite directions. And whatever tunnel it selects, the other particle selects the opposite. It's random. It's a 50-50 random shot, which one it will do. But the other one always does the opposite, which gives this whole notion to this whole sci-fi idea that there is like a, what do they call it in Superman, where he's the bizarro world, where there's like a bizarro Chaz, there's a bizarro Mark Uh, out there. I see what you're saying. Uh, Yeah, Alternate Earth. On the exact opposite side of the galaxy, which is a fun idea. Yeah, polarity. yeah. So again, maybe, who knows, but we do know these particles are fucking tricky and that observation has a key effect on them. And because of that, we've kind of hit a a wall. It's the same issue that happened with ESP research. I mentioned earlier in the sixties and seventies. And again, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove does a good breakdown of this in his encyclopedia of consciousness. But they were basically doing these experiments with random number generators where a person was trying to psychically influence it, making it do even numbers more often than odd numbers. And they found that if they had someone sitting there going even psychically, it would make a significantly above chance effect on the on the random number generator for storytelling purposes i always put this at 11 percent. that but that's more of the upper limits it's usually lower but on a good day you would get 11 percent higher than chance you know not like you're not gonna change the stock markets with that but you know it's if you're going to war you know you take an 11 percent power boost you might sacrifice a virgin to get an 11 percent power boost that might work out might be worth it but the problem was when that ex- those experiments were uh, attempting to be replicated skeptical researchers came in and they had the same experiment run and all of a sudden they were getting odd numbers, but they were still getting odd numbers higher than chance, even though the subjects were trying to get even numbers. And so on a bad, it would be 11% odds, even though they were trying to get even numbers. And so what they ended up discovering is it didn't even matter how physically far away the researchers were from the participants. If the participants had a biasy that they didn't believe in ESP, it would affect the experiment negatively. If they had a biasy that they did believe or they wanted to believe, it would affect it positively. And so the conclusion was, well, shit, you can't research this. Like that, there's no way to set a control. You can't have a control, so you can't have a genuine experiment. And so there's no way to know how powerful that influence is actually. And since it's not 100% or anything, we're just talking about 11% at the most, science has kind of been like, well, we'll just ignore that. 
And it's again, it's kind of becoming this issue with quantum mechanics where they can't ignore it. They've spent billions of dollars building those hydrogen colliders. And the conclusion is, well, we can't have a control. So hopefully those nerds will figure out a way past it. And that's where quantum computing comes in. And that's where I get totally fucking lost and don't really understand any of that shit. But well, and I don't think there is a way to to find a, a solution to that. I think really it's a, a matter of a paradigm shift because our overarching paradigm doesn't oh, sure. match with exactly what you just explained. And I think that's why all of these events and occurrences that we're describing, whether it's Sasquatch, ghosts, or UFOs, whatever category it fits in, that's why all of these fly in the face of science and our our understanding of the physical universe. And maybe that's a paradigm shift that will accommodate all of those things more neatly, at least. I mean, it's definitely something that I think you've entertained uh, through your research, but let's fold in another dimension to this because i think you brought it up earlier where people noted that séances were more successful after they had some you know drink maybe smoked a, a little bit of who knows what i mean it was the 1800s so they probably had opium and hash and tobacco and who knows what else and and so but this is something that kind of fits like even with indigenous cultures they talk about you know offering like drinks like alcohol or smoke you know tobacco to the spirits right Mm -hmm. and even with like the fey folk encounters you have people being offered drinks and different foods by these spirits so it's even kind of like an exchange in that sense where but then to bring into the the sasquatch you know people give offerings to the sasquatch so but how do you, you know fit that into your research obviously being stoned or getting a buzz off of whatever psychedelic you have at hand is a part of your process how do you think that plays into this sort of quantum concept that we just described and helps you sort of mitigate past this kind of physical paradigm that we've all been indoctrinated into yeah it certainly has a a brain rewiring effect where you can have more of a an understanding of these kind of concepts because we we do kind of fall into these reality tunnel perceptions even though at the end of the day we all believe in in some kind of of nonsense that's my new favorite terminology and i don't mean to say nonsense as a dismissive term but that's kind of a, a misnomer dr raymond moody has a great book called Making Sense of Nonsense. And he, if the name sounds familiar, it's because he's the guy who coined the term near-death experience. And a bulk of his research is into that phenomenon. But he's also, you know, a legitimate doctor. And so, of course, throughout his entire career, he's gotten a bunch of professional backlash for, you know, broaching these subjects and looking into it. And so this book was kind of his response to it. It doesn't touch anything paranormal. It's purely about logic and how we have this kind of failure in our modern language. And because the question he keeps getting is, why do you look into these things? It's nonsense. Why are you researching nonsense? And he's like, well, because someone's got to make sense of it. Nonsense as this, you know, 
synonym for false is a, a total misnomer. A, a piece of information that's nonsense is not neither true or false. It's actually kind of this crucial third piece of logic that has kind of missing in our, our everyday thought pattern that kind of leads to a lot of the, the divisiveness in society because it does lead to good or bad, true or false, right or wrong. When in reality, there's a little room for some gray. And so, you know, the, the presence of nonsense, we hear it in music, poetry, Dr. Seuss books, right? It's pleasing to us to read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because it activates our brain in a way. And we try to find patterns within the words. And we do. We, we find meaning within these phrases and words. But it doesn't actually mean anything yet. And that's his biggest point. And so his takeaway is, you know, science uses nonsense plenty. Of course, think of a religion. You can think of a whichever religion you are not listener. Think of something silly they believe in. Perhaps Scientology. (laughs) How silly of them to think that nonsensical thing. Uh, Two boats in every, two animals in every boat or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyways, but science uses nonsense as well nothingness exploded into everything that was the start of the universe the big bang that sentence it's a contradiction it doesn't mean anything it's nonsensical it it doesn't have uh, a true or false meaning it's a clear contradiction it's something dr seuss would write to entertain a child Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's false it means it's a placeholder. It's a placeholder piece of information. And so when people come away from these paranormal experiences, whether it's the near-death experience, an alien abduction, you know, having sensuous love with a Sasquatch in the woods, whatever that paranormal experience is, it might sound nonsensical, but that doesn't mean it's true or false. It means the information doesn't make sense at this current state. And Robert Anton Wilson had a really good quote in regards to this. He went to one of these like skeptical science debunking fair conferences, which I got to find me one of those. I don't think they do them anymore, but it sounds fun. Uh, But it was, you know, a panel of scientists saying how ridiculous all this paranormal stuff was just taking dunks on, you know, Von Daniken and that kind of stuff. And he thought it was all, a little silly, you know, a witch trial with no defendant or something like that. But the the quote that stuck with me was that he, a, a quantum physicist came up to, to talk about, you know, how fake some paranormal shit was. And Robert Anton Wilson was well-versed with like his writing and the theoretical nature of all of his work. And his, his takeaway was like, he he got the feeling that it was much like saying Salvador Dali is a much better painter than Picasso because it's more realistic. <laughs> and I was like, that's a fucking great ass quote because that's a, that about sums it up where we're we're discussing these two fields that are essentially nonsensical. None of them make sense. And we're nitpicking which one makes least sense. And th- that's true whether it's a a religious person attacking a scientific structure a scientific structure attacking a religious structure 
it's true when I sit here and attack flat earth and, and support hollow earth gang forever. It's true in, you know, all of these cases where we're really arguing whose brand of nonsense is superior. And yeah, I'm going to give it to science. It definitely does make way more bombs and guns and computers and shit. So it's, and we want to talk about like material ways to measure which one's better. You got that going for you. But obviously, if you're listening to this show, you're not entirely convinced that material means everything. And so obviously there are other values to religious nonsense. And so, again, you got to learn to appreciate that nonsense and not because you don't understand something doesn't mean it's it's false or fake or it should be rejected. Yeah, great points. And I definitely agree with that in many ways. Now, something that you just said got my wheels spinning because it seems like with with science, there's a point where culture has a sort of extent as to which it can develop science. I think people are maybe aware of the conspiracies against geniuses and inventors. And I think you and I can agree that science probably has potentials that are not being explored because of certain cultural parameters and, you know, things that are on the agenda, you know, war and all that, as you pointed out, guns and bombs, right? And Mm -hmm. there's a need for that to a certain extent, right? But when it comes to some of these UFO reports, it does seem like there's an overlap between people who have engineering skill or an ability to create things and these paranormal encounters. There's more than one, more than, more often than not, I'll, I'll venture to say, People who invent things and create incredible things that change the world often have these strange experiences in their life. Is this something that you've come across in your research? And I mean, what does that make you think of? Like, do you think there's a a higher, you know, force that these egregores, as we kind of started off talking about, you think these egregores have ideas that are coming forward from the future into the present somehow? Yeah, so I'm glad you phrased it that way because I'm currently working on a project where it focuses on individuals like that who have kind of pursued these alternate theories of technology and then either they themselves have have dropped off the radar, especially if it's in the modern era, or in the centuries they they had all their work fucking stolen. And of course, everyone knows Nikola Tesla, how that all went down. Donald Trump's uncle got his hands on all that shit, which time traveling Trumps is one of my, it's prime stuff. It's good, juicy, great story. But that's one example of, you know, dozens of scientists who had these alternate technologies Uh, And the reason we remember Tesla is because some of that has come out now and turned out to be, you know, 
functioning technology, wireless electricity, all that kind of shit, which again existed in the 1800s. We still have people today saying, well, that obviously came from 1940s when that Roswell crash occurred and the aliens gave us that. (laughs) This fucking awesome Serbian dude was in his garage making remote control boats in the fucking 1860s or whatever. So again, I do think there is a lot to be said for that human influence and this idea that there are other forms of physics out there yet to be discovered alongside gravity and electricity and magnetism, these invisible unseen forces that are yet still physical. And I think the the particle realm, the quantum realm is starting to bump up against that. I think things like light and consciousness, they exist in these super minute particles in a a combination of, of these things. And so an understanding of that might understand, lead to a, an actual understanding of a, a sharedness. Um, that being said, I also think there's a good amount of evidence you can use it to fly around on some crazy fucking <laughs> crafts and shit. And that kind of gets into the B theory, which I'm sure we've discussed uh, on the show before. Go find that episode as well, whichever one that is. Um, but this idea, uh, it was Viktor Gurbinikov was a Russian scientist who, short and sweet version, is built a UFO based off of using the insect shells, the chitin hardcover of flying insects, beetles, bees, those fucking cockroaches, that giant ass ones that can fly. We get here in Florida. All those things have, have these, you know, insect shells, which apparently have the special formation, which gives them extra lift, not through the traditional atmosphere, but through this alternate magnetism. Gurbinikov called it the cavity structure effect. And like some of the, the later scientists, he discovered that it could be used for medical reasons. You could like use it to stimulate, like the same way athletes put on an electrical little patch to stimulate a muscle. You could use this cavity structure effect to stimulate a muscle as therapy. And he, yeah, he also built a fucking UFO. Well, it's interesting, the point about the Beatles, because I was looking into this, I forget how it came up, but I started looking into peacock feathers and other examples of iridescence in nature. And it's Mm -hmm. essentially the same thing where these very small microstructures on the feather or on the skin the exoskeleton of the the insect create this effect where the light hits it in a certain way where it creates this color that's not really there like when you look at the actual parts it's Mm. usually black or brown it's not actually like a peacock feather is not green or purple or blue it's all brown but because of the structuring of the little microfilaments it creates this color effect and people who experience uh, UFO encounters, they often report the ships having this similar sort of color where it looks mm-hmm. like it, there's like color, like uh, iridescent, the, the term like oil on water is often described 
which is interesting. Frog skin is another term that's often described when people look at oh, these yeah. crafts. So, yeah, I wonder if that plays and into I'm it the same glad way. Glad you said that because there is there's a lot of research in particular into scarab beetles and the variety of colors in that exact regard. These bizarre reflective colors off of their chitin shells, which are the same shells Grabinikov says have these lifts. And of course, everyone knows scarabeals have this deification in ancient Egypt. And if the technology works as described by Gerbinikov, you literally could kill a bunch of scarab beetles, pull their wing shells off, stitch them together into like a chainmail sheet, and then slide it under a block, like a giant, one of those giant pyramid blocks, and one dude on each corner could just grab the corner of the sheet and lift. And that would have enough of this extra super fluid lift to to give it, to make the block light. Supposedly, Gerbinikov had built several blocks out of these chitins, and he would tap them, and they'd fly up to the ceiling and kind of float back down like a balloon. And so this technology, though, he essentially figured out that it was operating through a, when he would travel on it, there was no like wind in his face or anything. He could go in possible speeds, but he figured out that it created kind of this independent bubble. And the second thing he figured out is that it was most likely super unhealthy <laughs> to like be on one. Like, and his the story that he kind of uses to tell this example was that he was an entomologist, which is how he discovered this, you know, bug guy. And he would go and take this little flying craft he built to these research facilities. It was literally like a pallet with handlebars. He'd fly out. And on one instance, he put a, a larva in some test tubes, put them in his pocket, flew back to his lab, short little flight. But the larva was fully grown in his pocket when he got there. And that was something that normally took like a month and a half. <laughs> and it had occurred over this, you know, one hour flight. And that was, you know, that was enough to be like, oh, shit. Like, what is this doing to my, like, heart? <laughs> if I'm zipping, zopping around on, on this thing. And he's just one of these examples. The reason I got into deep into Gerbinikov is because I had two... Separate sources, totally shady, but with connections to military intelligence, claim that UFOs were based around bees in some way or another. Right. And it is interesting. I, I did do a quick, like, if you look UFO sightings and bee populations, the line graphs are like an X. The bee populations drop as the UFO sightings go up. And in Gerbinikov's model, we could just be killing those fuckers and breaking their wind flags off to, to build UFO outer craft material. Maybe. It's a little out there. But the genesis of it was that this craft flew and these insects, he discovered this third modality, this ether as it were, through studying insects and through nature and was able to build this flying craft and these medical devices off of it, even though he was an entomologist. Mm. And through my research, the amount of times that kind of story has repeated is fucking shocking, dude. It's, it's bizarre. There was a dude, Straussberg, another Victor Straussberg in Germany, 
He invented the world's most efficient log flumes. They still use his technology in modern log flumes. Before, you used to have to use a shit ton of water to move, you know, logs down the mountain. And he came up with this way of recycling old water and recharging it through circular patterns in these little vortexes. And you could use like one-tenth the water before. So it really upped, you know, lumber production in Germany. This was right at pre-World War II, though. So, you know, not the greatest use of that lumber. Right. Um, I actually have one of his books, and yeah, I don't know. I didn't learn much about him, but I I think he lived in America at a certain point in time, so he probably got out of there before things got dicey. (laughs) So that's, yeah, so he has a, there's an institute, I believe, in Austria that's still like, it's some kind of medical, again, based in medicine or whatever, institute that uses this technology. And they've done a really good job of, let's say, sanitizing Strasbourg's past because he most certainly worked on the Nazi Bell Project, which was using <laughs> slaves. Again, when they, when the people, his, you know, ancestors and the the people continuing his research are pressed on this it's always you know he was forced at gunpoint he didn't want to do it either way he was involved in the infamous nazi bell project this was uncovered in nick cook's research in the hunt for zero point and again he said oh i was just forced but his whole vortexy thing was really interesting he later built a flying disc off the same methods post-Nazi time, supposedly. And towards the end of his life, he did go to an institute in Texas where he was reportedly swindled out of all of his research. Like, he signed like a bad contract. They got all of his stuff. He left super pissed off and died a few days later in Germany. Like he was like super upset about the whole thing. And like, according to his family, literally killed him. But one of these flying disc prototypes still exists in Texas. And they're like, yeah, I don't know. It's missing a piece. So it doesn't work. But here it is. You know, what a weird story. (laughs) It's like this. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. What a weird story. Uh, Where is it? Can people see it somewhere? Or is it like in some sort of private yeah, facility. Uh, it's, it's owned by like an engineering firm or whatever. There was a uh, documentary crew who, you know, f- filmed a, a Strasbourg documentary in the early 2000s and they saw it. His son came there and saw it too or whatever. Well, but he also designed a lot of like he designed this bio plow that churns the soil in this vortex pattern that's really good for farming, apparently. Huh. Um, And he, again, the institute that continues his technology, most of the stuff has this medical purpose. And it works in the same way as Gerbinikoff's CSE effect and his medical devices. Then you have Wilhelm Reich, Orgone Energy. And anyone who's been in a New Age shop has seen an Orgone accumulator at some point, those little resin pyramids. Those are actually a beautiful piece of misinformation that has been spread by the new age community, either intentionally or, you know, accidentally. 
as they are wont to do. They like to latch onto something and go crazy with it. But the real organ accumulators were pyramids. They did get that part right. But they were more like wooden and copper structures that you would like sit inside. And it was, again, a medical device. Wilhelm Reich was a psychologist. By the way, Strasberg was a forester and naturalist when he discovered these water vortice principles and then discovered his version of the ether with these other devices. Wilhelm Reich was a psychologist. He has actually in the same class as Carl Jung studying under Sigmund Freud. And again, same region of the world as Straussburg. Gurbinikov was actually in Siberia. So he was Russia, but on the Asia side. And later, he was 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s. But Reich, he's 50s, 60s. He's right in that young time. And he did a lot of sexual theory. And he, hence organ, orgasm, whatever. And he believed a bunch of positive benefits believed scientifically proven now that there are a bunch of positive benefits to bust in the nut, you know, find the person you love and make love often. (laughs) It's true. It works. It's healthy for you. But he also discovered again, his own version of the ether. He called orgone energy. And this became the basis of his technology And he built these organ accumulators for medical reasons. But one of the more interesting devices he built was a thing he called a cloud buster, which actually did the opposite. It formed rainstorms. And he was paid by local farmers throughout upstate New York repeatedly, like on a month to month basis to come out and water crops with his cloud buster. And it was this big PVC pipe kind of accumulation of things which strikingly looks very similar to some of Gerpinikov's CSE machines. And this thing would create rain clouds. And on one instance, he, there's this story of him pointing one of these. He would water these crops. And during these events, he would notice, like, UFOs started, like, checking them out and shit. And so, like, one day he was, like, out. He was setting up. He was, like, setting it up to water the crops and firing. He shows one of these... You sees one of these UFOs show up and he like gets this idea, whips it around real quick and fires it at the UFO and like does the the process that would accumulate a cloud right at the center where this UFO was. And according to the story, the UFO buckles and like falls to the ground and like like starts crashing and then kind of swoops back up at the last moment and then zips off in this kind of like panicked fashion or whatever like they were like oh fuck the whole thing's collapsing oh shit and so again as the craft that Gerbinikov described flies through the same ether the same orgone energy that supposedly Reich's machines were operating with it kind of checks out they buffed the bubble (laughs) The, the, the ship all of a sudden was in normal atmosphere instead of this other atmosphere like a anti-air cannon for ufos that's amazing yeah, dude. and you and know so- i have a, a weird connection to reich my uh, cousin when he got married probably like six years ago he got married up in rangeley maine which is where they have at all the reich of reich institute yeah, yeah he didn't get married at the institute mm-hmm. but i did happen to i didn't know about it at the time but i think i even was near it somehow 
Um, and Dude, then it's on my bucket list. I really want to get. It's a beautiful there. area. I mean, I understand why Reich would have gone up there, but yeah, that was kind of a personal synchronicity for me. But I knew about Reich. There's recently Ryan Bever- Peverly of the uh, Libra Ohio podcast. He's doing a, a mm. documentary on Wilhelm Reich, and I don't know if it's out yet, but I think it's like a full. It's going to be like a multi-part oh, project. I'd like to talk to him maybe for the magazine about that because, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm writing a whole chapter on Reich right now, actually, as we speak for this project. Yeah, and again, like these other, you know, inventor geniuses, he was, you know, subjugated and shut down for his research, right? Yeah, absolutely. So he, his story ends with him in prison. Um, he was actually arrested by the ATF, if I'm remembering correctly, and they confiscated all of his uh, illegal medical equipment because he was healing people, you know, without these illegal methods, without these proven methods. And they confiscated all of it. He died in custody and none of his inventions or papers or anything have been released. So everything that exists today at the Institute up there. It's just whatever was like nailed to the ground and too big for them to fucking carry out, dude. And so that's why these fake resin pyramids exist today is because no one actually knows what the actual recipe for a fucking real organ accumulator is. Um, That being said, people do make it into a, a big conspiracy. Wilhelm Reich was a fucking dog, dude. Like he was sleeping with everybody's wife. (laughs) he was a bit of a scoundrel he's a fucking character dude like right out of a quentin tarantino movie for sure it's gonna be an interesting documentary i'm I'm looking forward to it yeah no he's certain again but the same story right so he discovers in an ether he invents a device that has some relation to ufos he gets subjugated at the end. He gets persecuted and his shit disappears. And so that's just three of what I, more than more than a dozen more examples from just the modern era of people who followed this same line and then had this experience where they're either totally shut down and their shit's stolen or disappears in a mysterious manner. Or in some of these more intriguing cases in some of the more modern times, they come out with this technology, it seems revolutionary, and then just everything goes quiet. They disappear. And it's really synonymous with, in in my mind, the Manhattan Project, where, you know, everyone really makes this, there's this grand story about it, right? How it's this amazing secret project that they were pulled off or whatever, and it was this awesome feat of, of military intelligence. It, it was, sure. You know, the average person did learn about how powerful a fucking atomic bomb was when they dropped it. But to say it was a secret is a bit of a misnomer because everyone working on the project, they were the top atomic minds of the Western world. So if you were going to university at the time and taking atomic science, anything related to atomic science, you would have noticed your professor was fucking God. You know what I mean? There's like 
Nobel laureates who were giving lecture series who are just gone all of a sudden and all of their mails being forwarded to the New Mexico desert. People knew something was up, you know what I mean? And so there's a very similar pattern that's kind of occurred. Specifically, if you look at some of the research around one, any kind of free energy device, there's this really interesting company. I'm blanking on the name right now. It'll come to me. But they produced a few videos of this generator that didn't need to be plugged in anywhere. It was this ran off of air and vans and it worked in a very similar way to the way these Straussbergs technology was described. And it was generating, you know, a big setup in an office. And then they had a second video of it on like a remote island doing like the same thing with a bunch of lights and like shit like that. And then the company just disappeared. All the, it just went dark. All the people who, you know, were involved in making it, their LinkedIn's have never been updated since like fucking 2004 or whenever the videos came out. And, and yeah, they just gone. <laughs> and so... I, I do. I think that if you, I, I think they took some big lessons from the Manhattan Project and figured out how to get ahead of this one. You know, the cat was already out of the bag on what atomic energy and atomic shit could do. The the superfluid shit was still kind of under wraps. Not entirely, though. And the reason I keep calling it the superfluid shit is because there is a actual scientific concept around this idea. It's not just ether, the force, or whatever. It's kind of been commandeered. But the reason it's been commandeered is because it has been in human society forever, this notion. Probably because there's something to it, maybe. But the reason I keep calling it the superfluid is because there is, we do know of a element that does exist in this format. And that is, I believe it's helium three. It's one of those heliums. When you get it to like, it's 2.61754, something really exact, degrees above absolute zero. It does this weird thing that no other element's been witnessed to do. And so at that state, when it's that cold, the helium is no longer a gas, it's a liquid. But the liquid simply phases through the container it's being held in. It'll drop through the bottom. It'll irradiate this out the sides. And more importantly, it'll climb through the middle of the glass and irradiate out the top edge. It literally teleports through solid object and irradiates and defies gravity. And so it becomes the, the state where molecules are vibrating at the exact same pace in this harmonious way where it phases through gas, air, solid, whatever. And so the superfluid theory is that if there was an element that was naturally occurring that existed in that state, in a superfluid state, not in a gas or a liquid or a solid, well, it's, it would be impossible to see, wouldn't it? <laughs> It's the same thing as the quantum particle. It's the same thing as the ESP test. It would be something that is essentially impossible to observe because it would be literally inside of all of our cells. 
It would be inside of all of our inside of every table, inside of every lamp, inside of every ocean, sea salt, everything. It's inside of all forms, which, again, if these things are flying, operating more akin to a submarine and the superfluid than to a plane in air, that explains why UFOs and craft similar can have that transmedium travel. They can go through the ocean, they can go through air, and they can seemingly go into the sides of mountains and walls and shit and just vanish. As long as there's a, a place for it to phase back in, materialize back into normal fluid, you could land it in any kind of cave, right, fly it right through a wall. And so I think that there's a good amount of evidence that there's something like that going on. Well, now again, there's so many ifs, ands, and buts, (laughs) but there's certainly a bulk amount of evidence regarding these scientists and their lives that suggests something's going on. And then in the addition through my own experiences and research, there's something going on. I'm pretty certain here that something's going on. I'm literally waiting for the men in black to knock on my door any day now and be like, hey, shut the fuck up. Don't write that. I'm hoping, but we'll we'll, we'll have to see how the book comes out at the end here. (laughs) Right. Well, if you do have the visit, please send out a a coded signal, a coded message somehow. But yeah, dude, I'm taking pictures. They'll have to shoot me, man. I'm I'm fucking because I'm also a a John Keel student. And if you're familiar with those kind of Barker-esque encounters, you know that there's two kinds of men in black. There's the dudes with the buzz cuts and the fucking aviators who are your obvious, you know, military narcs who are like, hey, shut the fuck up. Don't talk about UFOs, you hear? And then you have your Keelian ones, which are like, how do you eat jello? What is a breast? And they have like yeah. wires hanging out of their pockets and they can right. melt coins in their hands and all that kind of shit. Yeah, man. Um, it's so, so weird. The minute I see anything that resembles a man in black, I'm like football tackling. I'm fucking going for the knees. I'm, I'm tearing his clothes off. It's going to be on the local news. It's going to be like, man, assaults Mormon fucking creature. <laughs> because I'm be like, are you? Where's the wires? Are you human? (laughs) I gotta know. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, hopefully you don't end up in one of the Florida Man tabloids. But, yeah, I I think this... I I would love for you to send me a link or something describing that fourth state of matter, that, you know, test or experiment that you described, because that's really fascinating. There's actually old-timey video of it happening. It's bizarre that there's not new-timey video of it happening. Kind of fits with this whole hypothesis I got going, if you ask me. Yeah, this has been a really fantastic conversation, man. I mean, we went really... We ran the whole gamut of paranormal phenomena, which I think is uh, exactly what I expected from a guy like you with your full wide spectrum of knowledge and, you know, you've researched so many things. There's still a couple questions I didn't get a chance to ask you, but I'll save those for next time. Of course, people should go and check out our first two interviews, episode 118 and episode 207. 207, we talked about the Bet Sphere, which might be 
one of these cannonballs, as you put it. I like that description. <laughs> and yeah, man, what for the folks at home, obviously they can go to chazofthedead.com to keep up with everything you're doing. But what can we expect in the near future? Do you have any plans for the next couple of months? Anything that you're working on that's ready to come out or... Yeah, I'm hoping to have a a full-length, more in-depth version of what I just talked about on here um, uh, in book form, hopefully out by spring. It keeps getting pushed back by me because I keep finding more shit to write about. I've got a atrocious list on my whiteboard of stuff I got to get into. But again, all that side diatribes we still only scratch the surface of all the the shit evidence supporting this kind of story that being said find all of that shit little updates i'll be sprinkling them throughout paranormality magazine so get a copy and get a subscription paranormalitymag.com as you said chazofthedead.com for all of my personal appearances articles books links to patreon all that stuff and then at Chaz of the Dead on all the social media stuff. I haven't been posting too much lately because that shit's bad for you. But I'm a I'm a hop back on. I got some good photos, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get out there and advertise. <laughs> so cool. follow me for on all that shit. And thanks so much for having me on, man. This is always a blast. I love it. I love having you on, man. You're welcome back on, especially when that new book comes out. I'll put it next to this one. Folks, go and pick that up. Paranormal Expeditions, Hunt for the Friendship, Chaz's uh, first book, right? This is this That's was, the first one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. cool. So, yeah, we'll look forward to the next one. And until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was our episode with Chaz of the Dead. If you want to hear the full extended edition of this episode where Chaz breaks down his thoughts on everything from the breakaway civilization that may be responsible for UFO sightings, even Bigfoot sightings, potentially. Um, We talk about this breakaway civilization. We talk about the Foo Fighters. We talk about the Nazi Bell, psychedelic UFO pilots. And like I said a moment ago, Chaz shares his thoughts on disclosure. Uh, So please do sign up on the Patreon to hear that bonus hour of conversation, about an hour, maybe a little less. And it was a doozy. I mean, I was sitting there at the two-hour mark thinking, oh, geez, Chaz is still going full steam ahead. This is great. So don't miss out. We got into some really, really fascinating stuff And even in the free edition of the show, we got into some fascinating stuff. I mean, Wilhelm Reich shooting his cloud buster at a UFO and causing it to completely buckle and almost fall out of the atmosphere. Have you heard that before? That's crazy. I have it written down. uh, Wilhelm Reich's UFO gun. Yeah, strange stuff. And there were some things that we didn't get a chance to touch on, like the Tomb of the Giants in Morocco that Chaz allegedly explored. I wanted to ask him about that, but we just got into so much stuff in this conversation. So yeah, please don't miss out on the extension. Not only do you get extended editions of each episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, but you also get an ad-free experience and you don't have to hear me promote our wonderful sponsors like The Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. Shout out to my man Garrett down there. He is the creator, 
the founder, the owner, the operator. He's an American-made small business, the hitkit.us. Go and check it out. They create some amazing contraptments, doohickeys, devices to contain whatever you happen to be smoking on. Whatever strain is good for your brain. Check out the hit kit. Whether you smoke spliffs, whether you smoke joints, maybe you smoke blunts like me, the hit kit is a great way to keep it all safe and sound. Whether you're going on a hike, you're going to work, who knows what you're doing. Uh, Just don't, you know, just use your hit kit responsibly. I'll say that. And of course, I want to give a big shout out to the Harden Co., the Hartford Denim Company. If you want quality, one of a kind, workwear, denim wear, the way it was invented, the way it was intended to be made, not this Chinese high production, uh, mass production crap that you can find at your local department store. I'm talking about real quality denim, the kind of denim clothing that you can hand down to your great grandkids. Hard Den Co. My man Marshall, he is the man behind Hard Den Co. And my, uh, I don't know what I would do without him because he's really been a huge help in moving. Uh, he's helped helped me immensely since I moved to this new town, uh, New Hartford, Connecticut. He happens to live uh, right right across the river, so that's awesome. Uh, shout out to Marshall. Shout out to all our supporters. On Patreon and Substack, you can join today and become one of the first 250 supporters. Help us reach that goal. I'll start doing in-person interviews and probably just dedicate more time to the podcast once I'm making that much money from the Patreon. Uh, Right now, I dedicate literally as much time as I have, and the rest of my time goes to making sure that I could pay all my bills. So, you know his life i'm not any more special than any of you listeners i'm not asking any of you listeners to break the bank to support the podcast for as little as five dollars a month you can help me continue to do what i love and why why wouldn't you because i know you love what i do too otherwise you wouldn't be listening so support your favorite podcast today and that's it that's all for my spiel Uh, I'll see you guys over on the Patreon. And immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are, in the now. MFTIC. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused, like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijacking perception tricking the population with holographic projections we see through it the system is unraveling i'm astral traveling to the library of the vatican on a sacred journey i embark with the squad forever spitting truth like mark on the pod gotta know the facts never hold back because i ain't getting caught up in the soul trap 
dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway, I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Rob him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel Until I see the light fly into the sky Get flanked by six F-35s facts, never hold back I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade <laughs>